Welcome to our next episode of In Conversation With, a podcast by the Sustainability Institute based in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Listen in as we chat to the diverse faculty for snapshots of the content we explore in our undergrad and postgrad degree programs, hosted in partnership with Stellenbosch University. We hope to bring you some interesting insights into the bigger questions we are asking ourselves on how to live into regenerative and just futures in an ever complex world. In this episode, our head of learning, Vanessa, chats with Candice, who recently ran the module on food security and globalized agriculture. Candice has been working with the Sustainability Institute in various capacities since she completed her MPhil in Sustainable Development in 2008. And many know her through her work researching, lecturing, and supervising in themes relating to sustainable food systems. Currently, most of her time is dedicated to her role as project manager of the Knowledge Hub for Organic Agriculture in Southern Africa, a project which seeks to develop knowledge hubs in four regions across the African continent that will collect, validate, and disseminate knowledge about ecological organic agriculture to farmers. Enjoy this interesting conversation with Vanessa and Candice up next. So today we are joined by Candice Kelly, who has been part of the faculty at the Sustainability Institute for many years now. Candice, it's so wonderful to have you join us today. Welcome. Cool. Thanks for having me. So you recently taught your module online here at the SI called uh, Food Security and Globalized Agriculture. And I recently read mm -hmm. a really shocking article where the UN warned that an additional 130 million people will be pushed to the brink of starvation by the end of 2020 as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. So this module couldn't really be more relevant right now. And I just wanted to ask, um, from a food security perspective, uh, it was obviously always a really big problem in South Africa and globally. But given sort of the situation and the developments over the last couple of months, what do you think is coming our way, um, especially here in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, as you rightly say, South Africa has had this food security, I would even say crisis for decades now. Um, and I think the problem is, is that not many people have really truly understood the level and depth of the food security problem that we have in the country already before COVID-19. People often seem to think that the term is just about whether there's like enough food available. So we're not in the middle of a drought or whatever, but um, in a country like South Africa, availability of food has never really been the major issue. The issue here is obviously people not being able to afford to access the food that's available. So even before COVID-19, as we all know too well, our country struggles with issues of unemployment and poverty. And um, our government runs one of the largest social transfer programs in the world. So for about a quarter of our population, uh, a social grant is their main source of income. So our government is supporting, you know, millions of people to, to not actually face starvation. But, uh, you know, we know that food security has got uh, different levels. So just because people aren't starving or aren't, you know, hungry all the time doesn't mean um, that the situation's okay. So 
the, the social grants keep people sort of from from hunger and starvation, but doesn't allow people to to purchase uh, nutritious food. So not getting the right kinds of foods has massive implications for people's health. And I think sometimes, you know, the, the term food security kind of uh, lets a lot of us forget that fact. So um, <clears throat> maybe to illustrate the point I'm trying to make, I think that one of the most shocking statistics that I discuss with the students on the food security module every year is the statistic that a quarter of South African children are stunted. So um, stunting is when a child is chronically malnourished before the age of five, meaning that they haven't reached the developmental levels that they should have. So these children then end up being impaired for life. So not only physically impaired, but also cognitively. Um, and that there's, there's very strong evidence that these children, even if they get really good nutrition um, sort of the rest of their lives, they'll never actually be able to achieve what they would have if they'd gotten the right nutrition before the age of five. Um, so they'll never be able to do as well in school. They'll never be able to earn um, a really good income. And to me, that's like this huge indictment, not just on our country, but actually on the world. So we can put so much time and energy into other issues, you know, improving the education system or developing entrepreneurs, which obviously are important and people need to work on those, those things. But I kind of feel like we still have these children, one in, one in four children in our country, who we failed before they're even five years old. Um, I know that's quite a heavy place to start our conversation, mm. but I think I'm just trying to say that I want people to know that the situation was very bad even before COVID-19. And we know that it's going to get a lot worse um, now because of COVID-19. And I think it's going to be quite a long time before it gets better. Um, I mean, we obviously know the consequences of people losing their jobs and, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of knock-on effects that are happening throughout our economy. But I think another um, <clears throat> a scary sort of consequence of, of COVID-19 and especially like how the lockdown was um, implemented in South Africa has actually been that it's probably strengthened the formal or the big business part of the food system in the country and has weakened the informal food system. So we know that like during the hard lockdown, for example, only the big supermarkets were allowed to operate. Um, the informal traders, a lot of the spaza shops were not allowed to operate. And we also know that the restaurants and hotels and the tourism industry were shut down and still is. And so a lot of the smaller scale farmers um, and fishers who supplied into some of those uh, kind of niche supply chains, um, their businesses have just disappeared. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize the importance of the informal food system to food security for people who live in, in uh, low income areas, especially urban areas. Um, informal traders allow people to buy small quantities of food when they don't have a lot of money. They often allow people to buy food on credit so they can pay back when they do have money. And often it's the place where people pick up things like fresh fruit and vegetables, maybe meat, um, as opposed to the supermarkets where people tend to go, you know, monthly to do a big, a big shop of your bulk staple foods. Um, so I think that, you know, and we've seen there's some really interesting research, which I encourage people to have a look at the Southern Africa Food Labs uh, website. 
Uh, it's a sort of multi-stakeholder group that's trying to find interesting and new ways to look at the issues around food security and sustainability in the food system in South Africa. So the Southern Africa Food Lab has been curating very actively this year its blog and bringing together academics and activists and journalists and putting all of their writing around um, food security and especially since the COVID-19 crisis, the impacts there. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to read there. Um, <clears throat> so I think that this the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdown has actually it's probably going to mean huge profits for the big uh, agribusinesses and the supermarkets, but we're seeing the kind of decimation in a way of the informal food system and especially a lot of those niche supply chains. And sadly, a lot of those niche supply chains, I think, are where a lot of the more sustainable farming practices, but also the smaller um, smaller farmers and fishers were able to supply into. So. The fact that those have been broken and might, you know, we know a lot of hotels and restaurants probably aren't even going to reopen. So that's been quite a, a scary and probably unintended consequence of this whole thing. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot more I can say, but maybe I'll stop there for now. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. And, and like you say, it's it's quite a heavy place to start or for conversation, but I think also very necessary for um, for people to understand sort of the complexity behind this and that food security has many layers to it, like you said. Um, do you think that mm. uh, that possibly, um, and, and maybe it's impossible to say, but do you think that um, there is a little bit more awareness being raised around these kinds of issues? Um, I've seen sort of initiatives that have started up, and obviously there's been a lot of news coverage on food insecurity in the country. And do you think that there's there's more um, yeah, awareness being raised and that people are responding in different ways? Have you seen anything interesting sort of being developed, any interesting initiatives coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, it has been quite amazing to see how civil society and then just, you know, average members of the public have leapt into to help with things like food distribution, food parcels, sandwiches, soup packs, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think maybe one of the most interesting initiatives that I've seen was uh, Food Flow, which is still operating, um, which kind of just, it was very quick after the lockdown started. Uh, so it's a group of people who realized that, for example, farmers with Abilini Bezakaya, which are small scale farmers in um, low income areas around Cape Town, uh, you know, their market was suddenly destroyed. Um, the, the box schemes that they were part of and the delivery to the hotels and the restaurants. And so what they did actually was to redirect the food that those farmers was gr were growing to um, people who needed food rather than, you know, the kind of high-end markets they had been supplying. So you could um, sponsor a, a food box or a food parcel from where the small scale farmer would get some income, but then also it would go to feed uh, a family in a community that, you know, was struggling for food. And it's been quite interesting too, because not only are they working in Cape Town where there's a lot of um, sort of urban farming initiatives already happening, but they're also trying to work in some of the more rural areas, which I think often get a bit neglected in some of these initiatives because there's not a big um, wealthy urban population to kind of sponsor or start linking up um, 
yeah, to, to, to feed people. So that's been a really exciting initiative. And uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there is also a group of academics and activists who are kind of working together to think about the ways in which government is trying to step into the breach and um, support people and to point out the places where they might not be doing very well. So I know the one thing that's been very um, controversial has been the um, school feeding program that government usually runs a school nutrition program. So obviously with schools closed, um, a lot of children relied on the meals that they were getting from early childhood development centers or from um, school feeding schemes. So that's been very contentious and something I don't think is quite resolved yet. Um, but yeah, it's been very interesting to see how people have kind of stepped into this breach. But I do wonder if we will maybe see a bit of a deepening of that um, engagement with the food system. So, you know, when we talk about when are things going to go back to normal, it, do people realize that normal was never, never really good enough? Um, and then do people think about things like the levels of nutrition in the meals that are being provided? So, um, yeah, you make, but, but children shouldn't just be living on peanut butter sandwiches forever. They need more nutrition than that. So, yeah, um, I think the scale of the response from civil society is unlike anything we've ever seen, which is obviously really amazing and, uh, you know, impressive, but what happens, how long can we sustain this level of, of sort of social transfer, um, and how long can we sustain people's interest in in these issues? Um, I kind of feel like maybe it's a moment that could be capitalized on uh, to drive some of these issues and people's understanding of them, but I'm not sure if that's happening yet. Yeah, that's um, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot myself as well, as sort of the, the opportunity that this presents to us um, to really change some of these deep-seated or, or at least address and, and raise awareness and think of solutions to some of these deep-seated issues that have, um, you know, and, and at the Institute, we've, we've kind of been uh, researching and, and um, discussing these kinds of issues for, for many years now. Um, so, so I wanted to, to, to ask you if you might be able to, for listeners that, that are maybe not so familiar with the issues surrounding the food system um, and how it's linked to issues of social justice and ecological restoration, which is something that we here at the Institute have been looking into for, for a long time, whether you could elaborate on that a little bit more and why food is such an important topic um, within the sustainability field. And I think you've touched on, on a lot of that already, um, but maybe you wanted to highlight some specific um, linkages, how food connects to social justice, ecological restoration, and sort of in, within the sustainability field in general. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose the the easy answer in my mind in terms of why food is so central to sustainability is that just food is central to our lives. It's one of our most basic needs as humans. Um, but <clears throat> in terms of kind of sustainability, maybe in the sense of equity and justice, um, I think we can kind of think about it in terms of within the human species and then between us and other life forms on the planet. So if you think about, and what we try to teach in the first module is um, the impacts and the outcomes of the food system. So we've 
touched in this conversation already on the kind of shocking outcomes in terms of food security and health because of unequal access to food. So even within the same neighborhood, you know, you have people with different levels um, of access to food. And I think even though globally, you know, if, if you look at the big picture, um, as a global society, we are making improvements in reducing undernutrition, so hunger levels. We aren't doing very well in terms of micronutrient deficiencies, so people's access to good quality food that gives them all the micronutrients they need to be healthy. But also we're seeing levels of overweight and obesity rising almost everywhere in the world. So if we want to improve people's lives, if we want uh, justice, that everybody kind of has uh, an equal chance to, to have the best life, we have to improve the food that people have access to. Um, and then we haven't really spoken in this conversation about the massive impact the food system has on the planet. So, um, you know, the, the measurements are still being debated, but uh, the food system is one of the major contributors to climate change. It's between 15 and 25%, depending on the, the measurements of the global greenhouse gas emissions that, that come from the food system. Um, you know, water, 70% of the world's water is used by agriculture. Um, obviously biodiversity as we, as we use more land for growing food and the methods that we use to grow our food has major impacts on, on biodiversity. So I think whether, you know, whether you personally are more into, uh, if you, you know, you're more into the issues of, of social justice or maybe more into um, the environment and ecological restoration, you know, understanding and, and focusing on the food system is really key to improving either of those aspects of sustainability. Mm. And um, I know at the Institute, you, you lecture on, on two different modules or convene two different modules. The one is obviously the one that we referred mm. to earlier around food security and globalized agriculture. And then you have a second module. Um, and often when I hear the students talking or read their feedback um, and, and how you've referred to it in the past is that students often feel quite sort of heavy and, and I almost want to say depressed after this first module where you look at a lot of these issues that we've been talking about. And I wonder if you wanted to mm. just expand on, you know, what, what do you cover in the second module? What is the name of it and, and how these two modules are linked? Um, I'm hoping we get another opportunity to chat to you again after that module. Um, but yeah, maybe just mm. to, to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I mean, I think... The, the aim of the, the first module is always to, to explore the history of the food system and to really get a sense of power and politics that, that have shaped the food system and the power and politics in the food system that shape human society. And then, it, like our conversation so far, it can be quite heavy um, because there are just so many, um, so many negative things that come out of this food system. And um, I think often the kind of global forces at play and the kind of economic forces at play um, can feel like insurmountable often to a student at the SI. And then the second module is where we start to explore um, the things that are changing maybe for the better and the ideas that people have about how to change the food system. So we call that module food system transitions, um, which is a nod to the kind of uh, 
focus in in academic and sustainability science circles maybe over the past uh, I don't know five maybe ten years looking at uh, how we actually try and and move society towards this more sustainable future that we want so how do we do it and what does it look like what changes do we make so um, the second module we try to look at um, you know there's sort of global trends that are happening that are shape, shape sorry <clears throat> shaping the food system and then there are the things that people propose that we do to make things more sustainable so we kind of look at um, uh, frameworks for understanding the shifts that are happening and the shifts that could happen we also look quite a lot at um, ways of trying to almost classify the different groups that are proposing different solutions to the problems in the food system because often I think people um, they might read something or you know they see a video or they speak to a friend and there's an idea that gets proposed which maybe sounds quite interesting or um, you know appealing and um, you often need to understand where different solutions come from when people propose them what is the thinking behind it or kind of what is the world view behind that that proposal and so I think that's also why it's really key why I really encourage students to do the food security module first because you need to kind of understand how we got to the food system we have today and the kind of complex issues that are at play so that when somebody when you read about a possible solution you kind of have a place to situate it um, in terms of you know the forces that got us to where we are and the forces driving where we might go in the future so um you know it's the one uh point that you know i think what tends to happen is people tend to like very simple solutions which unfortunately um are the ones that probably aren't going to work like you know, you hear things like, okay, everybody must go vegan and that's going to solve all the issues. Um, but unfortunately, things aren't that simple. And aside from the fact that it's pretty impossible to get that done, um, just trying to understand the impacts of what that would mean for, you know, um, different economic systems, for different um, communities, etc. You know, I think that's one of the things that's been really interesting Um in terms of shifts in recent years in the, the space of studying food security and sustainable food systems has been this attempt to bring together um, the people who are looking at sustainable agriculture and how we make the actual farming or production part of the food system more sustainable with the people who work on health and nutrition issues. So weirdly, I mean, I think a lot of my students often, things I tell them are happening that sounds amazing. They're, under impressed by because it seems almost like obvious that that should have happened but we're getting a, a much greater working together of of kind of people who focus on health and nutrition and the people who focus on the production part of the food system and so we're seeing quite a lot of um, focus on what a lot of people call sustainable diets so um, trying to work out what must we eat to be healthy like if we if we could eat anything what would be the most healthy diet we could eat um, but also going, okay, we can't do that in isolation. We have to look at that in terms of what the planet needs us to eat for us to survive as a species and to allow, you know, other, other species on the planet to survive too. 
So that's been a really interesting development, I think, um, recently is this kind of bringing together of those two, two groups of researchers and thinkers. And so, yeah, in the second module, we start to look at some of these developments and because people would have then done the first module, we can place them kind of in context of things that have happened in the past and where people might be coming from when they make proposals like, um, I don't know, let's a sugar tax is the best way to reduce obesity, you know, is it? Let's think about what happens when governments try to, to put taxes on foods, etc. Hmm. So fascinating. I mean, there's so many interesting points that you mentioned now that we could spend another couple of hours discussing. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, to check with you if, if somebody wanted to do more research into this or read a little bit more into this on their own time, do you have any academic reads or other resources like videos or podcasts that you could recommend to our listeners that, that might be a good starting point for them to, to kind of dig deeper into some of the very interesting points that you've now raised? Yeah, I think... Um... I think for, in terms of a book, a really good book, which is not too long, and it's kind of written in quite a nice way, but it is written by academics who are also activists, is a book by Raj Patel and Eric holt Gimenez called Food Rebellions. Um, that came out probably, gosh, I can't remember now, I'd say probably like five to ten years ago, but it's still super relevant today. I mean, they cover a lot in terms of the history of the food system and then issues of power and politics in the food system, which to be honest, you know, the, the main forces and, and things don't really change that dramatically. So it's a place to, to start. Um, and it's also, you know, it's written, it's written sort of as a popular book, but it's definitely more leaning on the academic side. Um, so I think, Weirdly, I'm not much of a podcast listener anymore because I'm, I used to listen to podcasts when I was commuting, but there's not much commuting going on now. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to remember the name of the one podcast that I really enjoyed on food. I'll find that quickly. But um, then I think one thing that I really recommend if you maybe even like quite a beginner in this space is uh, the series Chef's Table on Netflix. I think it's really lovely because not only do you kind of learn a lot about uh, food culture around the world and different types of cuisine, but I think chefs are actually a really, um, I mean, chefs can be good and also not so good, but a lot of the chefs are really um, very interested, obviously in the food system and where the food comes from and how it's produced. And um, for example, Dan Barber, he's one of the chefs featured, I think in the first season and he is just amazing in terms of being a sort of chef activist. And he really thinks about how to support more sustainable food production. Um, so that's really, really like nice way to, to engage with a lot of the issues. Um, there was also a really interesting new documentary series on Netflix called Unnatural Selection, which is about the latest advances in genetic modification so around the CRISPR technology and then about gene editing, which personally I find quite scary, but I think it's quite important to know about these things because, you know, um, a lot of it is being kind of brought into our food and a lot of people don't really understand what genetic modification is. Um, 
In terms of like academic reading and videos, I really would recommend uh, the Food Climate Research Network's website. So it's fcrn.org.uk. They are a group of researchers, um, obviously essentially based in the UK, but they actually bring together people from all over uh, the world who are interested in, in food sustainability. And they have a really nice weekly newsletter that you could sign up to, um, which will tell you about different events happening, conferences, webinars, but they also will highlight the latest kind of academic research um, that's come out, great articles. And then they also on their website have uh, links to lots of videos of conferences and uh, kind of keynote addresses by academics and activists. So that's really nice. Um, and then I found the name of the podcast that I enjoyed. Um, it's called KUT, The Secret Ingredient. Um, it's an American one. Raj Patel is one of the main contributors to that again. So, um, yeah, and they cover things like seed saving, tech and the future of food, um, the history of sugar and its importance, kind of how it developed um, our cultures, etc. So that's a really nice podcast. Sure, thanks. That's a that's a great list of, of resources to to get started on. Thanks for that. Mm. Um, maybe just as a sort of as an ending point. Um, so you you touched on on something a little bit earlier when you said you know people often look for very simple solutions and it's it's very often not that simple, unfortunately. Um, but I was mm. wondering if if to end off, if you are able to share maybe a couple of, of action points um, that, that people could start doing uh, that might um, start addressing some of these, these problems. Um, because I think we often feel quite overwhelmed by the enormity and, and the complexity of, of these challenges that we're facing. And uh, sometimes mm. maybe people feel like there's no point. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a couple of action points um, that anybody could start taking, even if it's just starting to inform themselves. Um, but yeah, do you have any any sort of tips or, or thoughts on that to leave our, our listeners with? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like you say, it's, it's no use um, not doing anything just because it's too overwhelming. So it's almost like don't get so perfectionist about getting it right in terms of what kind of food you eat, where you source it from, that you, that, yeah, that you get overwhelmed and end up like not doing anything. I would say obviously um, reducing your meat consumption is always going to be really good for the environment. I don't think you have to become a vegan or a vegetarian. Um, but, you know, in terms of environmental impact, obviously reducing the amount of meat you eat is huge, um, the amount of dairy that you eat. And then in terms of... Uh, how to find food that has been produced um, in a way that's good for the environment. I wouldn't say that local is always the winner, but actually what you need is to get a sense of where your food's coming from and how it was produced. And so that's actually where local comes back in because often with local food, it's much easier for you to figure out where did it come from and how was it grown? Um, so, you know, if you're buying from a, uh, a farmer's market when they open again or some kind of online store that actually tells you where something came from or which farm then that's always going to be an easier way for you to check the kind of credentials of what you're eating 
Um, and I think it's also at this point, especially, but always, but obviously now with COVID-19, if you can find ways to buy food um, and support producers and people, you know, making food who are smaller scale, you'll have a much bigger impact than if you just spend your, all your money at a pick and pay, for example. So, you know, I know it's impossible pretty much to never step into a Woolworths or a pick and pay or a ShopRite or a Checkers, but if you can find ways to sort of spread your money around um, and support smaller scale producers and food retailers, that makes a much bigger impact on livelihoods often than just going into your pick and pay. So I think, um, you know, there's there's so much to do and there's so much to think about, but if you just start with those steps of reducing meat and dairy, trying to find local producers who you feel like you can trust in terms of the way they they produce food and how they treat the environment. And then if you can try and support the smaller guys, you know, those are some really big impacts you can have with your food rand or your food dollar as they call it. So just if you can put a little bit more effort in, in terms of um, those three things, it'll probably make a much bigger impact. Mm. Yeah, that's some really great um, practical tips. And um, I've also noticed how some some of these initiatives like you cook are also starting to try source from sort of your smaller, um, smaller scale mm. farmers. Um, so I think there's a lot of initiatives out there yeah. um, and possibilities sort of to start supporting also um, veggie baskets, um, veggie box schemes, et cetera. So maybe in the in the link we'll yeah. post a couple a couple of those that we that we know of. But um, our time's yeah. kind of run out for now, and I just wanted to thank you so much for all the interesting insights and the interesting conversation. And yeah, thanks for joining us, and we're looking forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, Vanessa. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Candice.